I still haven't showered since I got back from Colorado. Hasn't it? Didn't didn't you come back yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, didn't you say you got back from Colorado on Sunday? Yeah. And it's Monday. Tuesday for y'all. Hi. (laughs) We fucked up. We fucked up again. I'm so sorry. It was me this time. (gasps) Woo! I simply was not paying attention. And I really, I I, uh, set us back. But, hey, you know what? I needed to not be the only dumbass in this relationship, so I thank you for taking the fall this time because my confidence really needed it. It was it was much needed. So yeah, sorry. Um, hi, we're late, <laughs> but here we are. Uh, okay, it's but what do you time. expect? Better late than never, baby. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, I'm sorry, but. It's fine because we're going to make it up to you. Don't worry because like the story that I have coming up this week, uh, she's a two-parter for sure. Perhaps even a three. I Wowza. doubt it will. I'll doubt. I doubt it will get to three, but uh, it may because I have a lot to say. And I'm sure I'm like assuming Sarah's going to have a lot of questions because I did when I first heard <laughs> it because wow. So you know what? We'll make it up to you and we promise. We promise promise okay after this week uh, back to normal uh, totally back to normal don't it's, jinx it's not it. gonna happen again <laughs> it, we'll be fine we don't have any vacations the next vacation is literally me going over to see sarah in person so the only thing that yeah i won't jinx it okay so <laughs> Anywho, welcome to the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast, the podcast where we talk about murder, mystery, and mishaps. Clearly, it's run by two of them ourselves. I'm one, uh, Kristen. Here's the other one, Sarah. Yes, and that makes two, two. It takes two to tango. It takes two to fuck up a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. It's, um, wow, it is. Okay, one, it's been a week. It's oh, my God. just emotionally, the news-wise, it's really because as I'm saying this Monday night, and this is going to be posted Tuesday morning, the following morning, um, I'm still in the middle of editing <laughs> our last episode, but it's crazy how in editing that episode, hearing our intro we're redoing it because we fucked up and we wanted to apologize but in it we mentioned the gabby petito case and in just a few short days it has already dramatically changed and i mean first off we want to give our condolences to the family we are glad that gabby was found it's unfortunate the circumstances but i mean our hearts our prayers our thoughts everything going out to the family right now and yeah i know yeah it's it's been um 
you know, insane to watch it all unfold. And I know, you know, being a true crime podcast, uh, being fans of true crime, where our personalities are the type to really, you know, dive into these type of situations, um, you know, almost try and solve it. And we come up with our theories and, um, just, you know, remember that during this time, things are still being investigated and, um, Gabby was a person and not necessarily a character. So, yeah. um, this also sheds light to, because her case got so much attention on the media, all over the internet, you know, her, it's rumored or it's said that her body was discovered because of the YouTubers who saw her van and gave the FBI, you know, that information with the location. And so it's amazing how how things like that can happen, how um, things can quickly be resolved, not resolved, but, you know... Um, As a community, yeah. Yeah, so... Things like that are great, but this also sheds light on to how many other missing individuals are out there, not only in the Teton area, but in national forests and all over the world that, you know, they don't get as much attention. They don't get solved as quickly or they don't unfold as quickly. And um, so I think this is also as um, it's just a reminder for us to give focus and passion towards uh all the other cases of missing persons yeah at the end of the day we're all human beings and we all want to help each other out it's amazing to see how the community truly gathered i mean it is amazing all of the people who should be hired in the FBI right now because they were freaking breaking right. the case left and right, throwing out hints, talking, giving their information and their theories out and really helping to find Gabby and bring her home and give that family the resolve. And it's just shows how much a community can do and how much we should do for every individual that goes missing you know there are a lot of cases out there right now that could also use our attention and just because Gabby is now found doesn't mean that our search should end for that justice for any and all families that have to experience this because no family should experience this but at the end of the day we are extremely relieved and grateful and thankful that Gabby was found and that her family is getting that peace. And hopefully now we can switch that attention to locking up that sick motherfucker that did it because. Where are you, Brian? Yeah, you're not missing. You're fucking on the run, you bitch. And Mm. hmm, that's all we have to say about that. But yeah, so we, it's heavy hearts. It's, it's a mix of you're grateful, but at the same time you're devastated because I mean, Crime Junkie did a, oh no, 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 you're good. Crime Junkie did a uh, current episode on it. If y'all are interested, I, I think, you know, 
this is probably all we're going to say about the case. Yeah. Um, I There are a lot bigger podcasts and a lot, I don't want to say better because, you know, we're pretty good, but <laughs> there are other podcasts that will, I'm sure, do cases over this and... Um, well, I just, I, well, and um, also, like, with me, as much as I'd love to do, like, a story on this case, it's so fresh. Uh, things are still unfolding. Like, like we mentioned, it's Monday right now. Tomorrow, uh, the Laundry family's loyal, lawyers coming out with, or they're doing a press release. And then also tomorrow is when the autopsy is being done. And I, I kind of like to soak all of that in before putting my focus into like writing about a case like this it's just so fresh you know yeah and it's just even hearing the clip where the officer is interviewing them like even just hearing that it's just way too similar way too fresh in my mind for me to even want to touch yeah case it's just very I just want to give the utmost respect to the family and you, that's all you can try to do during this time right. and just send your thoughts, your prayers, your vibes, whatever you believe in, send it out to that family. And then also to the other families that are also going through this, because unfortunately it's not just Gabby and we live in a fucked up world where there are, are a lot of people that, and a lot of families that don't have this resolution that still need our help and so, yeah. We hate to be somber in our intro, but it's just like it it it's literally so insane to see how in just a few days it has progressed. Right. It, it <laughs> like this is the most uh together I have seen America in quite some time. <laughs> so right. it's kind of like relieving to see that, you know, us as Americans can unite and say, "Hey, this is fucked up." And something needs to be done about it so yeah i think uh with that being said we'll we'll let y'all enjoy the rest of the episode this was recorded a while back but yeah, i know like was, which one what are we talking about uh, it meant to come out last thursday we're sorry but don't worry like we said we'll throw out some uh probably an extra episode this week with a two-parter with my episode um yeah, I think that's it. I think the white claw has officially hit. I think my tears have officially about to come out of my eyes, so I'm just going to stop talking. And Sarah, you got anything to say? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, guys, just uh, enjoy the episode. And we will be back to our regular scheduling and see you on Thursday and possibly Friday for the two-part. We'll see. Stay tuned. Okay, bye. Bye. So we are talking about Scott Rogers today. Um, I had actually... I didn't... I I had never... (laughs) Sorry. I had never heard... (laughs) Sorry, who is he? (laughs) All righty. I had never heard about Scott Rogers. Um, I don't. I don't think until I just I... think of like um, Mr. Rogers. Is he the guy with the sweater? Is, is like you know, guy? this is so weird because like he is totally not Mr. Rogers, but 
to his community. He was really loved and he was kind of seen maybe as like in a similar light as to Mr. Rogers. You know, aside from his last name being Mr. Rogers, he was at one point really loved by his community and I'll obviously get into that right now. So Scott Rogers... Um, I'm not going to get into his immediate background, really, because I couldn't find much about it. So I'm going to kind of randomly start off at at a certain point. So I don't want that to, like, weird you out. It's just where we are and what we have. So Scott Rogers was working as a principal at a dance and performing arts school in England, which he also helped open or... Uh, like found suddenly or randomly he decided to relocate his family to the united states in the late 90s his family consisted of him and his children he had two older sons matthew and ian he also had a daughter kimmy who was just a little younger by like a year or a few years mm-hmm Apparently, these three children were also dancers. You know, they apparently blossomed out of this all, like, shared passion of dance. So once they moved to the U.S. from England, they lived in Texas for a few years, around the year Hmm. 2000. And then after a few years in Texas, they settled down in the St. Gabriel area, which is near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Damn, so this family moves. Kind of. So they didn't move frequently at all, but in, like, kind of a short time period, like, within the span of five years, from the early 90s till about 2000, they moved two or three times. They moved from, yeah. Um, So it's not, like, significant yet on why they moved or how many times, but we will find out later on, like, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, because why, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, like, it's It's totally understandable on why someone would move from the UK, from England to the United States. But I I think typically (laughs) when you're in a position, like let's say you're in a job or you're in an industry where you have to be moving, it's a thing where it's constant. You are moving constantly. I think it's a little random to, and I mean, whatever, also true crime podcast, so I know something sketchy is going on. I think it's suspicious that like you just randomly uproot three times randomly in your life out of like the however many years of you living, but... I get that, like, that also has probably happened in normal life and, like, sure. Right. You never know. It could be totally sketchy. It could also be this family trying to find their new roots. You never know. Um, And I'm like, you fucked up twice? (laughs) (laughs) You're fucking guilty. Guilty. You fucked up once? Shame shame on me. (laughs) You. Uh, Shame on you. (laughs) Okay. Two times you. <laughs> Three times me. <laughs> me, okay, me. Huh? <laughs> when the family did settle down in St. Gabriel, um, they did move into a beautiful, large, estate-style home. Um, 
and shortly after they moved to St. Gabriel, Scott opened his own local television studio. And this is where he hosted his own weekend show called Around the Town. Oh. Yeah. Uh, So the name of the show kind of gives off some obvious concepts. The show had a community aspect. It promoted local nonprofits and public agencies. Um, You know, he would just do like interviews with random locals and politicians and big names And I will note that, like I mentioned, his home that he moved into was a large estate-style home. He opened his own studio. He seemed to make enough profit to where he could afford a luxurious lifestyle. He could afford the home he lived in, supporting his children while also wearing nice clothes, Mm -hmm. driving nice cars, affording to do, you know, like whatever Mm-hmm. Um, and this was eventually questioned by a few people because his television studio where he had his weekend show, it it was either assumed or verified that like he definitely wouldn't have made enough income or profit from that to pay for what he had. Mm-hmm. So his show around the town was... <laughs> It was totally like a family affair. So his sons, Matthew and Ian, produced and filmed at the station. You know, they kind of did like whatever, whatever they could and would. uh, His daughter, Kimmy, would also appear on, you know, segments and certain filmings or whatever. Scott became very involved in the community and kind of became a community activist of some sorts. So after he, you know, settled <laughs> settled into St. Gabriel, built his TV station, uh, he kind of embedded himself into the community. He would do things like host and announce the uh, local Christmas parade. He joined a local church, and he was super, super huge into religion. And he even started to preach where, uh, you know, at the church he joined. And it became pretty often where he would just be like a guest or co-preacher. He eventually opened his own church at his television studio. (laughs) (laughs) He did things like host a... You know, the local Christmas parade. And I even think he emceed or helped host certain certain political events. He would speak at community events. So he really kind of got his name out there. Um, he joined a local church and even eventually started preaching there. So this is where his whole social persona took to a whole nother level because he eventually opened up his own church at his television studio so he went from attending church to preaching occasionally to opening up his whole entire church Mm. and many of the churchgoers from his previous church where he was attending and occasionally speaking at they followed him to the church he opened up so many of 
you know, the you know, local spiritualist of that sort would really believe in him and trust him and, you know, literally follow and worship him. So mm. can't mm. wait to hear how this religious man fucks this up. Yay. <laughs> this always, <laughs> you know, this always not, ends well. Yeah. <laughs> not me being triggered. <laughs> Kristen's being the total devil's advocate. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I just, I just Scott became so involved in the community, he kind of became the man of the town. He was so outgoing, he would even wear super crazy outfits like bright purple suits, super colorful like two-piece outfits. Um he was just eccentric. That kind of makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, and you I know, mean, like, I know a okay, lot of us are it, wondering or thinking about maybe not, his sexuality, but it's never brought up in this story. Um, I'm not, not going to bring it up. The fact that he dresses weird, it's the fact that like I just know he is dressing weird for a weirder purpose. Yeah, don't spoil it, Kristen. Well. You've already heard remember. this story. No, 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 no. <laughs> Once, okay, the, the, I was extremely drunk, but the uh, instance of a purple eccentric suit is bringing back some Barney. memories. <laughs> I, like, bro, bro, when I'm telling you, I literally don't remember the, ta- the crime. Mm-mm. I'm, I'm hearing it for the first time. No, yeah. So, um, he, he was, a, you know, vibrant outgoing eccentric his you know i when i mentioned his family aspects and um stuff like that you know i never mentioned him having a husband or a wife i never mentioned him having a partner throughout this whole thing so his sexuality is never really brought into play or why he has the children he has or how he has them um, oh, a, so except he's for like some, never, so he's never, oh, well, except for you know, I will mention for a couple like how he gained his children, you know, okay. how they became his children. I was going to say, so he's never been married. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there, there is not. Um, well, in my research, there was not mentions of any kind of marriage, um, oh. or anything like that. It, it did, it did kind of seem like he leaned towards the more. A single life with maybe well, I mean, he had male have... preferences on his, but if it, he had, it's not well, a part I'm... of the story. Wait, wait, wait. Really, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I'm, have... I'm, I don't want to make anyone mad. What year was this? Uh, so the year of the crime is 2014. So it's pretty. Uh, so he, he but his, his yeah. okay, but it dates back also. So this is where. You know, within How my story. <sighs> oh, see, so my question. My... Could... This is kind of like spoiling the story because I'm like, oh, no, no, okay. So no, no, no. Hold on. My question is, could he have kids without surrogacy? Yes or no? So like, what was it a matter of like he had to have slept with a woman in order to have had those kids, or no. he was in a position and technology and society was available to him to where he could have had those kids you know outside of uh normal 100 percent. because obviously if it's in like the 70s no fucking well because i'm gonna he, mention it's not i'm gonna mention also okay. and it'll okay. like gain pr- perspective on the whole thing but i, I think like, i just you can't have a kid without a woman well but obviously i got ahead can, of myself so like and i started ranting because 
even I don't I know like you may not remember from last time but like even with his daughter we still don't know like where the fuck she came from and if she she was adopted if she was you know genetically hurt his or what the fuck ever oh adoption fuck me (laughs) i'm forgetting a whole like part of the equation yeah so yes you can also adopt children Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) fuck me i don't know why i was not i'm so ignorant i was not thinking of that wow throughout scott's time in america (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry okay i'm done (laughs) I'm canceled and I'm done. <laughs> I had to throw it out there, man. And you, especially, just especially a with all the. Ahead, I'm sorry. Honestly. There, there are a lot of people right now in society saying to adopt. So I'm, I'm just also throwing it out there. <laughs> You're only just a little ahead. Like, hold on. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. You were like so close. You were so close. Throughout Scott's time in the United States, you know, after he settled in with his three children and started building his way up in society, he would adopt another son and start fostering a second son who he was eventually trying to adopt. The timeline of this adoption and fostering situation is a little unknown um, because, like, when we get to the... um, like top of the case the top of the, the yeah the, the top peak. of the roller the peak of the roller coaster the hill the crest of the <laughs> yeah it. when we get to that point climax. Mm, climax obviously we'll understand more but <laughs> sometimes is... i forget i need to be a little bit more respectful i'm sorry i know i'm like <laughs> Hey, where was I? You and know? we're back. I'm sorry, we're we back. Gone, we we haven't gone to the bad part yet, so it's allowed. <laughs> um, so the timeline of these adoptions and stuff is unknown. But at the time of the crime where we get to the peak, mm-hmm. his adopted son and fostered son they were pretty young. So it was later that they were joining the family. So basically. By the point of him adopting this other son and fostering this other son, they have already, um, you know, Scott Rogers and his three other children have already established a comfortable life in St. George. They've been Mm -hmm. doing their television studio thing for a while now. They're all older at this point from, you know, the point when they migrated or immigrated into the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so... Mimi Fowler, who was a friend of Scott Rogers, described him as someone who got along with literally everyone. He always knew what to say, when to say it. He did everything right. And she described how she first met him, which was at a comedy club. And this was in Baton Rouge, but it was before he moved there. He was just visiting And then he would eventually, you know, end up moving there. Darla O'Connor, who is a former parishioner, described Scott as, you know, when she first met him, as arrogant, kind of haughty. She said that when when she first met Scott, he asked her, What do you think of my TV show? 
<laughs> and she was like, what TV show? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, you don't know who I am? <laughs> she was like, no. <laughs> I love so that. I'm like, because who? What? <laughs> okay. No, I don't know who you are, you dumb bitch. Apparently, Scott seemed super surprised and offended by Dar- by Darla's reaction of not knowing who he was. Ew, he was like, much, you know, what? I'm saying so, so you don't you don't know. You don't know who I am. Me? <laughs> so obviously to Darla, his sense of importance seemed to be pretty freaking skewed. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was really off-putting to her at first. But I'm I guess- sorry. I'm sorry. I saw this. I saw this one thread of this girl who like um. She goes right around Harvard or something like that, and she'll, like, go into bars and will, like, meet the guys. And when the guys are like, yeah, I go to Harvard, she's like, oh, my God, what's that? Is that, like, the local community college? (laughs) And they get so, they get so motherfucking triggered. (laughs) When, let me tell you. The whole reason they go to fucking Harvard Harvard is so people know they go to Harvard. I know. I'm sorry. Is that like a community college? I'm like, oh my God. The next time someone tells me that they go to a prestigious college, I am literally going to say that. (laughs) So vintage of you. Wow. (laughs) You dumb bitch. No, I'm I'm not triggered. You're triggered. (laughs) I'm fine. Although Darla was put off when she first met Scott, she said that he had a special kindness that had, you know, he had his own way of pulling people in. She hadn't known him. (laughs) She hadn't known him long when he invited her to Thanksgiving dinner at his house. And... This was also when she met his kids for the first time, so she kind of described walking into Thanksgiving dinner at his house, not expecting him having such a full house, like him having so many kids, kind of. Oh, so he didn't like to talk about his family? I think he, yeah, he kind of wasn't, he didn't like hide it, but he wasn't like... Here's my family. So. Come look at these photos. Yeah. Five kids. Um, Here's my wife. Sorry. Yeah, no. (laughs) So at this point, you know, Scott's three older children, like I said, um, Matt, Ian, Kimmy, they're all in their late 20s, early 30s. And Darla admitted again at how she was just surprised about seeing, like, all of these people in Scott's house. And she further described his kindness as how whenever she was in the hospital getting a double mastectomy due to breast cancer, how he was there for her the whole time when she literally was, like, going into sleep 
into surgery. He was there. And when she woke up like 10 hours later, he was there waiting for her to wake up. And he was there when she woke up. So she described his kindness as just literally like kind of um, life-changing. Like how could anyone ever be that fucking nice? But I don't know. Darla also knew Scott was a huge advocate for adoption and fostering of the youth because he did have the adopted son and the younger son that he was fostering that he was aiming to adopt. Um, Darla said that Scott's kindness, oh my god, and this is just like, okay, so I watched um, an episode on on this case that I'll link because I'm blanking on the name right now, but Darla is featured in the show and she described Scott's kindness as how it's like a what, sorry, as how it's like water on a rock and how eventually, you know, after enough water has hit the rock, it alters the rock. So like, after enough kindness, eventually, you know, like, it changes a person. Yeah. And that's, like, something that kind of really stuck with me, something that she said. Because it's, it's really w- rare that you hear people described um, in metaphorical ways that are related to nature and that are just so beautiful. Like, and ugh, I think it's like, just kill often... me now, please. <laughs> I know. And I think it's just so often, like, especially nowadays, um, a lot of us get off on that dark humor. So it's really rare to see a person that sees that glass is, you know, half full rather than half empty, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of somebody who did see Scott's glasses being half empty (laughs) was Don Kelly. He was part of the Baton Rouge PD. Uh, He was the captain, I believe, you know, at this point he's retired, but at the time of this, he was the captain and he was definitely in the minority of people in the community who did not like Scott. He saw, he was also in the show that I watched. He described Scott as being a clown, cartoon character, a phony, didn't, and he literally didn't want anything to do with him because One day, Don Kelly encountered Scott in kind of like a casual way, but it really made Don see like kind of, it gave him insight on, uh, or like an outside perspective on who Scott was and how he acted. Because as I mentioned earlier, Scott would host a lot of local like community characters politicians figures on his show mm-hmm. and so uh what anytime scott would host somebody important on his television show it was said that he would totally put on face and like kiss their ass he would just Basically, you know, if there was a politician on there, he would just be like, oh, you're so amazing. Everything you do is so great. And so when the police department chief gets invited to be a, a, a guest on Scott's show, 
Don Kelly goes with because he's the captain. He goes with the chief to kind of go hang out and sit on the sidelines and observe. So as the chief goes on to Scott's show as a guest, Don is literally sitting on the sidelines just watching everything. And he described getting weird vibes, to be honest, like weird ass vibes. I'm like, I don't know if I should expect <laughs> something to happen right now or if I should just like, I don't know what to expect. I'm well, scared. it just gives it, it gives us a little insight, to say the least. Mm-hmm. He said, so when he was kind of sitting there observing everything, he noticed that Scott was obviously, I don't know if it's obvious, but maybe presumably the center of the studio his employees, the crew members, you know, his family that worked there, they were all, like, super weird and jumpy when Scott would ask them to do anything, which, I don't know, like, <laughs> it, w- it was it was clear that they were there to serve him, like, they didn't hesitate to do anything to wait on Scott hand and foot, but they were still, like, weird and jumpy when he would, like, be aggressively asking them for things they were almost like scared to disobey right exactly like they knew they had to do it or or else oh my god so red flag uh, one (laughs) red flag number (laughs) five bajillion at this point but one for the sake when the police chief got done with his interview that day him and don were walking out to their squad car and (laughs) Um, You know, according to Don, as he told it on the show, he told the chief something like, I am so glad we're out of there. It feels like we just escaped a cult. What the? So. So, and you didn't arrest anyone? (laughs) Well, they had no reason to, you know. Um, Like, the chief was literally there being a guest, and Don was there as kind of backup, just Uh. observing. Like they had no reason. I know reason. it's a law. I know it's a law for a good reason, but it's just time like times like these. I'm like, you're being fucking weird. I'm just gonna arrest you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is where shit goes down. So, <laughs> oh, fuck. on Wednesday, August twenty seventh, twenty fourteen, police are dispatched dispatched to go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Police are dispatched to Scott's house because a woman named Maria Edwards, who is co-pastor to Scott at his church, calls 911 because she heard an explosion noise in Scott's house. She's fucking freaked out. So what the fuck? An explosion? That's dramatic. It's a little dramatic. And we'll That's find out drama. that it's like, like a you know what weird. an explosion sounds like? <laughs> I don't think so. Is this legit? <laughs> you know, on the, on the 911 call, she's fucking crying. She's begging for someone to call. She's freaked out because she hears this boom, boom noise. <laughs> Police arrive and they're greeted by Maria, like, in the lawn, apparently. And she tells them, you know, she was minding her own business in the house because whatever <laughs> and she heard it sounds like a boom boom appear <laughs> <laughs> sorry. sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i use i use laugh to deflect for my trauma don't come at me 
And then suddenly she heard an explosion noise. And that's when she called 911. And while she was on 911 or on the phone with 911, she heard another explosion noise. Um, so she briefly explains this to police as they greeted her on the lawn. Cause at this point it's all like still active. So yeah. police enter the house, really not knowing what to expect, especially because the one witness at this point is explaining explosion noises. Yeah. I'm like, what the <laughs> Cause you fuck? enter a house and you're like, that is like very extreme. <laughs> if, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But if I am explaining an explosion noise, when I come to the house, I expect it to be on fire. And if it's not on fire, I'm going to think you're lying to me a little bit. <laughs> grandma, it's not just because my own grandma suffers from the same exaggeration theory as I'm sure this grandma potentially does, but go off. <laughs> well, police clear the you know, first floor, the downstairs, they make their way upstairs. Uh, they're announcing themselves, making themselves known. No one's responding, but they do notice a bedroom door that's closed. And so they kind of yell back, you know, towards the bedroom door and they're announcing themselves again. No one is responding behind the bedroom door. They open the bedroom door. I, b- I don't believe it was locked or anything. I don't think they had to kick it down. I, I truly believe they could. They just walked in. Yeah. So when they walked into the bedroom, they see the bloody body of 52-year-old oh. Scott Rogers laying in his bed. Oh. He had suffered a gunshot wound to his head. <gasps> Scott Rogers. As police and investigators make their gaze across the room, they notice another man on the floor in another corner. Next to this man was a black handgun. So one of the officers walks over and he kind of like kicks the gun away from the guy on the on the floor to, you know, get a better look at it, you know, pick it up for evidence, because I think maybe he assumed the guy was dead. But when he did this, the guy on the floor starts to, like, move and gurgle a little bit. So this guy's not dead. <laughs> He's airlifted. Just casual moving and gurgle. Just casually, you know, still alive. He's airlifted Um, to, you know, a nearby hospital and is identified as 36-year-old Matthew Hodgkinson. I'm officially confused. Yes. And I'm not surprised. Because, because what the fuck is going on, man? Yeah, so... Yeah. So, Scott, this dude, who's become this, like, community celebrity is suddenly found shot in his bed and this dude whose name is Matthew remember I said Scott had a son named Matthew (gasps) you're not about to say what I 52 year old Scott was found dead in his bed while another male victim 
was found semi-conscious on the floor who was identified as 36-year-old Matthew Hodgkinson. And I will get into why they have different names, but this is in fact the Matthew of who is supposed to be Scott's son. Okay. 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 So if this gets confusing, please Uh, let me know. Um, Because... I will try my best, but I am drunk. As this case unfolds, Scott, we'll see. There's like a lot of shit that happens that is not as it is. So... What the fuck? Okay. By the looks of the scene, murder-suicide seems like the definite case. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, there's always a possibility of staging a murder-suicide. So please keep that in mind. But they, you know, obviously pursue other avenues. So... One of the reasons why they thought for sure it was a murder, 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 suicide is because there was a suicide note left and signed by Matthew Hodgkinson. Um, I mean, I, I'd say it's too long to read. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's not like it was super long. I'd say, you know, it was handwritten. And it was, like, almost a full page long, but I'm just going to read, like, a little excerpt from it. And so part of it read, they broke our happy, loving home. They do not get to take Scott, too. So (laughs) at this point, we have Scott Rogers, who has been shot dead in his bed, his so-called son, who has possibly shot Scott and attempted suicide, who has left a suicide note. And so at this point, the evidence, what evidence they have is there, and it definitely points to a murder-suicide. But cops are just like, what the fuck is going so on? Like, it's it's the so huge confused. what and why. So yeah. at this point... I'm confused. Yeah. Because... And I'm not a professional. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes... Okay, so it makes more sense why I'm confused. But I get it. The point is to confuse you before blowing your mind. The point is, everyone's confused. (laughs) So at this point, the evidence kind of, uh, you know, captured at the scene. As police made their way into the home of Scott Rogers, you know, upon discovering his deceased body, they did notice that there were some home security cameras. There's one kind of in the foyer towards the front door. It was turned facing the wall, like turned facing the corner. There was another camera in the next room over, and it was also turned towards the wall. So this was like kind of sketchy, you know, obviously to cops. Ballistics and blood splatter came back is totally, like, 100% matching the concept of the cop's original theory of Matthew shooting Scott in bed 
and then committing or attempting committing suicide. So the black handgun that was found next to Matthew's body came back as matching the consistent bullet shells, shells, casing, casing, (laughs) came back as matching the bullet shells and casings uh, that came from the bullets that wounded both Scott and Matthew. So there were only two shots, uh, shot? God damn it. There were only two bullets. Uh, What's the exceeded? No. God. No, I mean, like, whatever. So, shot two shots. Yeah. So, no other way to say they two bullets exited the bullet. Investigators found two bullet shell casings, and there were only two shots fired one at Scott and one at Matthew. So, Mm hmm. Damn, man. Yeah. The only witness was Maria, who was the woman who made the 911 call. But her behavior at the crime scene. I'm like, sus? A little sus, dude. Sus. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm like, she's the only one sus. So it, it, she. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're not sus. Was a little Hun. odd. She's sus. So as I mentioned. Yeah, I called it. Yeah. I, I'm not hearing this tale for a second time, honestly. <laughs> honestly. As I mentioned, like, after she called 911, I think she greeted police and investigators kind of in the front yard. So while that was all happening, uh, <laughs> you know, police or a group of police and investigators went into the house to do their thing while Maria was still outside and police were also out there, you know, I'm sure someone or a couple of people were assigned to her to talk to her or make sure she was just at least okay. And so apparently during this, she was so concerned about getting her purse back that was in the house. She was telling police that she needed to get it. But they told her that literally everything in the house was evidence. Like, there's no way she could go get her purse. She was bothered. Whatever. She also immediately said that she needed to speak with an attorney. I, you're like that fucking motherfucking boyfriend that we were talking about the beginning of the motherfucking episode. I don't like that. That's fucking sus. You don't want to take a lie detector test? I get that. You don't even want to talk to the cops. You don't even want to give a simple motherfucking alibi. Bro, you're fucking sus. I don't care if you're innocent or guilty. You're fucking sus. Suspectful. I suspect you. Well, you're not the only one, Kristen, because... Good. Yeah. Major Ronnie Herbert of the Sheriff's Office... Office... office. (laughs) (laughs) thought that this was fucking odd he thought that maria's behavior was sus and because from day one from moment one she was seen as a victim of the circumstance she was never immediately suspected as anyone um with ill doing or as a suspect yeah, because sexism but, works both ways, baby. But her immediately acting super sketchy made her <laughs> a suspect. Yeah. So 
Major Ronnie Herbert is like, okay, she's obviously <laughs> suspicious. Like, what the fuck is she not telling me? Because Scott was a local te- television personality. You know, this case gained a lot of attention. Maybe not nationality or nationally. <laughs> Sorry. Keeping <laughs> <laughs> that in. <Yeah. laughs> Maybe not nationally, but definitely locally, because he was by no means a national TV star. He was he a, was he binominally. Was, a... He was <laughs> mediocre at best. He, <laughs> he was a local TV personality, but a lot of people were shocked at what happened, and there was a huge group of people that knew. That Scott could never do anything wrong, you know, like, this is super crazy and random. But then there were a group of people that knew that this was not just a simple murder-suicide and that there was definitely more to the story. Ooh. Shit. So, kind of back to the investigation Captain James Snelson goes to the hospital to visit Matthew. Uh, you know, remember, he is the one who was found on the floor, mm-hmm. semi-conscious. Um, so he goes to the hospital to see if Matthew was alert and had any information to share on what happened. So when Captain James gets there, you know, like to his hospital room, Scott's daughter, Kimmy, was actually there next to Matthew, like, at his bedside. And this is when Captain James found out that Kimmy and Matthew were actually married. Wait. Yes. If you're confused, yes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, can... Uh Uh-huh. Can you explain? <laughs> I, all right. Sorry, I've been studying for school all day. I really don't need my brain to hurt anymore. <laughs> Can you just really dumb this down? Uh, okay. So at the top of the episode, you remember me mentioning Scott having three children, two okay, older sons, Ian and Matthew, with a daughter, Kimmy, who is a little I was younger. really confused. I, did I have a white claw too many? Kristen, do you need to calm down? I, I'm glad I'm glad the answer is no for today. Right. So <laughs> I hate to leave you hanging on a cliff, but I will get into more detail in a little bit. But at least at this point, I will let you know that Kim told Captain James in the hospital room that, um, you know, Captain James described her as being pretty quiet, but open, just, you know, obviously in a rough situation. So, she told Captain James that she lived in Baton Rouge with her boyfriend, not at home with her husband. Obviously, where her husband lived was also where her dad lived. If it's not obvious. (laughs) So, before Captain James could even open his mouth to ask about this, like, what? You live with your boyfriend? not your husband Kimmy says something about how her and Matthew have a super open relationship and like it's super like normal basically apparently this was news to literally everyone 
how Kimmy and Matthew were married. Scott's friend Darla, who I had mentioned earlier, who... Wait, so this is incest, though, right? No. Well, I don't think so. Um, so Scott's friend Darla, who I had mentioned earlier, who had met... Oh, because they were adopted. Mm-hmm. Sorry. sorry how sorry, she sorry. met Scott mm-hmm. and at first thought he was an asshole, kind of, and then he met her, his family, and all that. <laughs> when she found out Kimmy and Matthew were married, she was flabbergasted. Because, because I mean... When she met, okay, when she went to Thanksgiving dinner that day and met Scott's children and family, she was told that Matthew was Scott's half-brother. And she had no reason to doubt or suspect that information. My brain is just broken at this point. I know. It's a I'm, huge red flag because I just like, why I is this to, dude? I I want you to be able to go to jail for just that. Yeah, like, that should be an offensible sentence, in my opinion. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's all very sketchy to us all at this point. Hopefully, uh, and not too confusing, but. With Kimmy's father dead and her husband fighting for his life, detectives give her little space. You know, they see her in the hospital room and they're like, all right, we'll give you a little space. And then they decide to focus on other family members and friends to try and get any more information. So on August 29th, 2014, two days after Scott's murder, Maria Edwards came to the police station with no intention other than retrieving her beloved purse. So, as police were giving her purse back to her, um, this is a part in my research that was a little unclear, but apparently there were some, like, folded-up papers in her purse, and the police were like, what are those? Can we look at them? And she was like, okay... But I really don't know how it went down. But apparently these papers consisted of instructions from Scott on how to run his church that Maria co-pastored. And also a will from Scott. So police were like, why do you have these? And they're like, well, uh, can we interview you since this shit is sketchy as fuck? And she was like, I'll have my attorney contact you. Fuck you. Sketchy. Yeah. So she went to pick it up, pick up her purse. They tried to catch her on sketchy shit. She was smart, I guess. You know, I'm not taking sides at all, but she was smart and said, I'll have my attorney contact you. And she was able to fucking walk out. So, on September 4th, 2014, which is eight days after Scott's murder, Darla contacts the police department, which is the friend of Scott who I mentioned earlier. Um... 
she tells the police that she has some information that she'd like to share that would be probably useful. So she, you know, they call her in, you know, she sits down for an interview. She says that on August 15th, 2014, about two weeks before Scott's murder, a church member from Scott's church called Darla telling her that Scott was hysterical and that she was worried about him. She basically was on the phone with Darla pleading her for help, saying that she was worried about worried about Scott and that he had told her he was hysterical because that authorities aka um Child Protective Services, or whatever they call it in the state of Louisiana. I'm sorry, I didn't look into that, but... CPS. Yeah, in Texas, it's CPS, but in from state to state, it's different. So I don't know if in Louisiana, it's CPS. But basically, authorities had come and taken his two younger sons from him, which was the one that he had adopted and the one that he was fostering. So the one that he adopted, I believe, was about 10, and the one he was fostering was about 2. The reason why his these two sons were taken away from him was because apparently he had filled out some of the adoption or foster paperwork out wrong, and it was being seen as fraudulent, so he is now being investigated. Damn. Yeah. So remember, someone is telling all of this to Darla on the phone, and after this, Darla speaks with Maria, which is the lady who called 911, who's acting sketchy about her purse, and blah, blah, blah. But remember, this is all before the death, so Darla speaks with Maria, And Maria was super upset, telling Darla that she was super concerned for Scott. Scott was acting hysterical. So Maria asked Darla, like, to go see him, check in on him, talk him down, see if he's okay. So all of these phone calls are going on between church members and friends of Scott's. And um, I guess eventually Darla goes over to Scott's house And she just describes it as a pretty weird, not weird, but unusual encounter. You know, Scott was obviously hysterical and upset like she had never seen him like that before. Um, He apparently told her that every day since his sons had been taken away that he had considered suicide or at least, if not considered it, tried it. And he tried to tell her that everything that was being said about him as to why his sons were taken away was false. Like, everything about him being a fraud was false. Darla tries to calm calm him down by saying things like, you know, you're not... You don't know you're not going to get your sons back. You have to fight for them. It's going to be okay, blah, blah, blah. Because Darla has no idea what's going on. 
She came over to Scott's house because he's hysterical for some reason. She knows his son's got taken away, but she doesn't exactly know why. She just knows kind of the brief situation. So she's trying to be there for Scott. She's genuinely trying to tell him, like, it's okay. You don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be. It's going to be fine. Um, apparently, while she was there trying to talk Scott down, his son Ian was there. So Darla walks up to him and asks him if it, if he thought his dad was suicidal. And Ian said something like, he loves himself too much to commit suicide. Oh, fuck. That just speaks tremendous amounts to the household that kid was in. Mm-hmm. Uh... So Darla also shares something super interesting to investigators. She says that about two weeks later after her encounter with Ian or with Ian and Scott, you know, at their house mm-hmm. asking about Scott's hysterics and stuff. About two weeks later on a Tuesday, the day before Scott's murder, Maria calls Darla again and Maria says, Hey, I just want to catch you up on everything that's going on, you know. So Ian is missing. And Darla is like, what? Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) Apparently, Ian went to work at the TV studio that day, as he would normally do. He went to take the trash out into the back alley and never came back. I don't like that. Video surveillance showed Ian speaking with two men outside and then getting into a black vehicle (gasps) with them. Ew. <laughs> Stranger danger, don't do that. Oh my god. He hadn't been heard from since. <gasps> oh, I really don't like that. So is oh. Ian a victim of this strange story, or did he have a hand playing his dad's murder? <laughs> so while Darla is sharing all of this information mm. with the police officers, because remember, in... This past, uh, you know, five minutes or whatever, all of this information is what Darla is telling investigators that has happened to her. You know, the phone calls between her and the different church members like Maria and others, her finding out Ian is missing. She's sharing all of this with investigators. So while she's sharing all of this, what she doesn't know is that (laughs) Ian is not, in fact, missing. He was already in federal custody. Okay, Sarah, stop my brain. I know. So as she was sharing her side of things, as I mentioned, the phone calls, Mm -hmm. her account on what her hysterical conversations with Scott, her account on how she found out Ian was missing, what she didn't know was that the police officers that she was speaking to already knew where Ian was. Ian was in custody by the feds because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> apparently 
During this little investigation by the local police department, the feds contacted them and they were like, Hey, FYI, we noticed you're investigating Scott Rogers' death. We've been investigating him for about a year now. And they were like, what? So obviously federal investigations are more secretive. They're low-key. But at this point, they did let uh, the local police department and, you know, Major Ronnie Herbert know that Ian was safe in their custody. And he had been in their custody on the day of Scott's murder. Damn. The feds offer to bring Ian to the police, the local oh. police, for an interview. Because he was one of the closest people to Scott and Matthew. So his account of, you know, his side of the story would be extremely important and helpful to investigators. Until they interviewed Ian, police would have to work with what they had. Because, you know, it would take a couple days until they would get to speak with Ian. Because this case dealt with, you know, a local celebrity. It was a little more high profile. Not nationally, like I mentioned, but locally. So because of this, the analysis of like DNA results and any kind of evidence was turned back fairly quickly. So the gun they recovered from the scene was the one used in the shooting, both of Scott's and Matthew's. And both of their DNAs were found on the gun. Damn. Both of the spent gunshell casings on the floor had Matthew's DNA on them. Like I said, there were two found. And all of this matched the theory of a murder-suicide. So, the next big question is why. Because they know... Yeah. They know the deaths and what happened. It was a murder-suicide. The gun was there. The note was there. But why? What the fuck happened? What's the history behind this? So on September 5th, 2014, which is nine days after Scott's murder, Maria Edwards finally gets interviewed by police with her attorney by her side, of course. She tells police that, I guess, um, the day of the murder, she was woken up early around like 6 a.m. by loud noises being made by Scott and Matthew. I don't know why she was at their house. Like, I don't know if she was temporarily living there or staying there. Who knows? But she was awoken by these noises. And apparently she spoke with Scott and Matthew. And they claimed that they hadn't slept that night. They were, like, super stressing out because of literally the federal investigation going on. So, that day, the day of Scott's murder, there was a court hearing for the federal investigation on Scott. Kimmy was subpoenaed and, like, going to court that day to testify. And Matthew was also subpoenaed to be testified that day, but apparently he hadn't been, like, summoned yet. So... Um, from my understanding, maybe Kimmy was at the house and she was getting ready and left to go testify. So 
Matthew was maybe supposed to, but he hadn't been uh, summoned yet. So he was still there with Scott. And during all of this, during the federal investigation, the whole family was freaking out and in complete fear mostly because of deportation. Apparently, so remember... Scott and his three Dude. children came to the Dude. U.S. in the 90s from the U.K. It, whatever. It, it's just the biggest fucking eye roll to me. It doesn't matter if it's happening in America. I don't care where you're from. I'm just, like, fucking charging in America. I don't care. It's so stupid. It's so stupid that if something bad happens to you in America, but you're here illegally, it's just, like, whatever. I think... I get it, you're breaking a law, but, like, still a law is being broken when you're getting fucking assaulted or murdered, so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you should be able to report it without being troubled. I'm sorry. I, I feel like you being assaulted or murdered is way bigger of a travesty than, like, you fucking entering illegally. Well, I, yeah, I so apparently Scott and his daughter Kimmy had U.S. citizenship somehow i'm not sure um so apparently the marriage between kimmy and matthew scott's daughter kimmy and scott's quote-unquote son Mm. was for citizenship reasons as well as a cover so the fear of deportation was tied to the fear of kimmy and matthew's marriage being annulled which would cause their family to be deported because apparently Matthew was married to Kimmy for citizenship reasons. The family was preparing for the worst. They were freaking out, literally being feared of deportation. So they were asking Maria's help by, you know, Maria's the co-pastor. She's the one who called 911. So they asked for her help. They started writing down their passwords to, like, everything for her, instructions on how to run Scott's church, um, literally just instructions on everything, on how she could handle their affairs in case that, like, in case the worst happened, in case they got deported. Scott also hid bundles of cash around the house. Apparently, $5,000 was found hung behind a like a photo frame or like a in the back of a painting on the backing area and apparently this five thousand dollars was for maria in case of anything bad happening damn maria said scott and matthew went upstairs that morning, you know, when they woke her up with those noises saying they were super tired and hadn't slept. She said they went upstairs because they were tired and they were going to get some rest. And then shortly after is when Maria heard an explosion noise. So she called 911 and while on the phone with 911, she heard an a second explosion noise. So now we're back. Right. So, obviously, nine days later, when we're in the investigation with her, and she's telling police all of this, um, they asked her to submit to a DNA swab, and she did without any hesitation, 
And this was so her DNA can be compared to that on the murder weapon and anything else found on the scene, obviously. Uh, her DNA checked out like it totally cleared her. So <laughs> her sketchy behavior, Maria's sketchy behavior was pretty much chalked up to her. <sighs> oh my God, it's so gross. Basically, apparently, Maria worshipped Scott. So her sketchy behavior and everything that went down was basically her protecting Scott's reputation. <laughs> Alright, so this next part in the investigation is pretty much when Scott's dirty laundry gets aired out and we find out everything that happened leading up to Scott's murder. So I know we're still wondering... Why the fuck did this guy get murdered by his apparently son, son-in-law? What the fuck? So, this woman named Rana Gray, who is another individual who did not like Scott, she is also an author of a book called Familiar Evil, and this book dives into this case, like, super deep, obviously, uh, if you're interested in more, definitely go read it. Um, I did not, but I know it gives way better information than I will. So, Rana had only heard of Scott until they worked on a public project together. Rana had or has a PR firm. So, you know, they had worked together once or twice, I don't know. And then after working together, apparently Scott gave an interview to the local newspaper. He said something super belittling about Rana and her PR firm. Just super degrading comments. So after seeing this, Rana wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper to basically correct the information and the comments given by Scott. She was not fucking having it. She saw that shit and she was just like, no, it's not true. So she never thought that this letter would reach as far as it did. Because in August of 2013, one year before Scott's murder, a person named Ethan Jones, whose name is um, changed to protect their identity, yeah. which also... I meant to mention earlier, um, the names of Scott's children have also been changed. Oh. Just FYI. Um, <laughs> it's for the best. Yeah. Anyways, Ethan Jones had come across and read one of Rana's articles that she wrote about Scott Rogers, and he decided to reach out to her. Ethan was a former dance student of Scott Rogers back in the back in England in the 90s. So as I mentioned at the top of the story, Scott had been the principal of a dance academy. <laughs> Fuck. Scott okay. was the principal of dance at the Academy of Dance I told dance you they don't move for arts. no fucking reason, okay? I'm ready for my mind to be blown. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. When Ethan reached out, um, to Rana, he, you know, this is me going on his account, basically. He told Rana that 
Scott and his previous dance company in England were bad news. Ethan had been looking and searching for Scott Rogers for 13 years. He literally searched all over the internet, but Scott Rogers is a common name, so he didn't really, like, come across any luck until one day he tried searching things like search phrases like, Scott Rogers lies, Scott Rogers liars, Scott Rogers deceit, things like that. And so when he, when Ethan searched Scott Rogers deceit, <gasps> he came across Rana's article. <gasps> the fucking tea is a hot. yeah, dude. Oh my god, I, uh... Ethan had been searching for Scott for 13 years. So when he finally found Raina's article and reached out to her and started sharing his information, he shared that Scott had been accused of sexually abusing boys as young as 12 years old <gasps> back in England. He admitted that Burn Scott... Burn at the stake. What? Burn at the stake. Oh, yeah. Ethan admitted that Scott had mentally and sexually abused him for four years. Wow. Ethan was 12 years old when he enrolled in the dance academy. His family didn't have much money, so he was offered a scholarship to attend the academy. He said that Scott would prey on boys that had poor backgrounds and families. Ethan described that Scott would start out with mental manipulation as part of his method to, you know, groom and lure boys in. I hate how everything that you're now saying makes sense. Yeah. Scott tried to turn Ethan against his parents and would even try and plant seeds in Ethan's mind that his family wasn't taking care of him properly and that he would be a better father. What? He would say things like, I love you, you belong with this family here at the academy. Ethan described it as very much cult-like, because once boys proved that they were loyal to Scott, Scott could get them to do anything that he wanted. Oh. And remember, this is all Ethan sharing this information with Rana. So, Ethan also shared articles with Rana, newspaper articles, showing how Scott was arrested in 1993 for abusing a 12-year-old child. (gasps) When Scott went to court for this case, he had a large number of character witnesses to testify on his behalf. And these witnesses were outstanding members of the community, like police officers and teachers. Ugh, it's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Scott's defense was so strong in this case that the jury was hung, and he was cleared of the charge. (laughs) I really hate society. He would seemingly disappear, and this is when... At that point in the early 90s, he would move to the U.S. Oh, okay. Ethan. 
What were you going to say? I'm just, this really blows my mind because I thought he was in the U.S. when this was happening. Okay. No, he no, was. No, no, I, 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 was, no, no, no I do know. Okay, yeah, no, no, no. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I got drunk a little bit. If it's know, too confusing, I'm so no, sorry. No, no, no. I got drunk and I re-remembered where we were. Okay, we're good. Okay, so we're still in Ethan giving his account of yes. things. Yes, And so Ethan that. also shared that Scott's sons, Matthew and Ian, were actually kind of kidnapped and taken with Scott and his quote-unquote family as they fled to the U.S. in the late 90s. So this gives us a little more perspective on who Matthew and Ian might be actually, a.k.a. not Scott's sons. After Scott disappeared, Ethan wouldn't see or hear anything about Scott, but what Scott did to Ethan lingered with him throughout his life. And this is what caused Ethan to continue his search for scott because Mm. when ethan turned 21 he knew scott was out there somewhere most likely still abusing little boys he felt like he needed to do something about it so this is when he began his search for scott and about 13 years later eventually found rana's article and got in touch with her Rana scooped this shit up. <laughs> she knew. So Adding she, that to my new phrase of words. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she already didn't like Scott. She yeah. knew Scott had adopted and fostered children. So hearing this from Ethan, all of this crap, That's she was need, like, baby. she was like, who the fuck is this guy and why is he here in the u.s allowed to adopt and foster children if he's been tried for abusing children she literally all the red flags were Mm. in her face and so it's so disgusting i'm like why does it take this woman to be like oh this is a red flag not the fucking government being like oh red flag children red flag right Um, luckily, this did inspire her to build a case against Scott, so she got the help of, um, or she seeked the help of, you know, legal help, and this is when she got the aid of Mary Jane Mercantile, or, yeah, Mercantile, (laughs) who was a criminal law paralegal, and when Mary Jane looked at basically the case files, all of the quote-unquote evidence against Scott, she was super fucking shocked that someone like him, who had been tried for child abuse, could become a foster parent or adoptive parent in the U.S. So she reached out to a federal law enforcement officer buddy of hers. Good for her. Yeah, with the hunch that something was super off with Scott. She had the hunch that he probably did something fishy on his adoptive and foster parent forms, as well as probably his immigration forms. Yeah. 
It's a federal crime when you provide false information on federal forms, such as adoption forms, foster forms, immigration forms. Rana and Mary Jane handed off, you know, they worked together to kind of build their evidence and case against Scott. And they hand off all of their information to the feds. And that is how the federal investigation against Scott started in November of 2013, nine months before his murder. (gasps) So the federal investigation started against him all because of this one lady (laughs) who didn't like him and so happened to get some dirt on him. It is literally it's, it's like I'm not women. saying it's it, bad, but no, she it, got fucking it's, lucky. No, she is uh, she is us like ten years from now. So-, <laughs> so within like the week before Scott's murder, the feds had what they needed to take action against Scott, and so this is when they did. <laughs> A group of federal officers picked one of Scott's sons up from school and the other one up from daycare and two protective custody. Fuck. Scott was apparently just like at home that day or doing whatever. So while this was happening, Scott was also informed that he was under federal investigation. Also, at the same time, uh, like I said, Scott was, like, at home. A federal agent went to his television studio to talk to Ian and Matthew because they were there working. And they were just there to, you know, inform them on the investigation to let them know on everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. The federal agent provided both Ian and Matthew with her contact information, you know, Toss them, toss them a card, you know, in case they had any questions or whatever. Fully expecting them not to contact her out of their loyalty for Scott. But to her surprise, she gets a call from Ian one day and he says, hey, we need to talk. So her and a few other federal agents go and meet him at the television studio <gasps> And that was when he disappeared. Wait, did did he know that the federal agents were coming? Yes. Okay. So while people, like random coworkers, friends, whatever, while people thought he was missing and disappeared from the alley, he was actually meeting up with federal agents and left with them <gasps> into federal custody. Oh, shit. Imagine the tea after people found that shit out. Mm -hmm. So earlier, like I mentioned, how the feds told local police, like, hey, we have Ian. Let's bring him in into you guys so you guys can question him. Ian finally gets brought in. And that's where we're in now. Like back to the investigation where... Ian is getting questioned. We're kind of back on track of uh, figuring out the big why and what the fuck here. So, 
in the interview, uh, Major Herbert, who I had mentioned before, he's the one who's kind of questioning Ian. And during this, like, and you know, it's it's not so much as a interrogation. It really is more like an interview um, because Ian was in federal custody. They're literally just trying to figure out, like, all they could. And in this conversation, Ian shares how the day prior, while he was in federal custody, he talked to his mother for the first time in 18 years. Ian shares that he met Scott when he was 12, and by the time he was 13, Scott was abusing at least three other kids that Ian knew of. (gasps) With the assumption he was obviously abusing Ian. Ian said that Matthew was in the same situation, but they never really talked about it. Uh. So this means that Ian... Like I said, he met Scott when he was 12. So this, this, just this had to have been when Ian was back in England running the dance studio. Ian and both Matthew met Scott as dance students. During this in- interrogation, um, Ian also shared that Kimmy never knew of any abuse. And that, that was important to note because um, I guess it was clear that no one ever wanted her in trouble and she literally like wasn't a part of anything so by the time ian was 14 years old his relationship with his parents had gone from good to severed yeah by the time he was 16 he was living with scott (gasps) so this is how scott became to be Oh, sorry. So this is how Ian became to be one of Scott's quote-unquote sons, and similarly with Matthew as well. When the family moved to the U.S., Ian said that life drastically changed. They were consumed with work at the television station. If they ever went off and did anything else or tried to do anything else, Scott would get extremely upset. What's interesting is that throughout this, like, conversation and, you know, interrogation interview or whatever, Ian does not refer to him and, you know, Scott and Matthew and Kimmy. He doesn't refer to them as a family. He refers to them as a group. So Ian tells Major Herbert about the day Scott found out that he was under federal investigation And how Scott was moaning and groaning about this being the end of his days. Scott was paranoid and thought the feds bugged his house. And this is when he turned all of his home security cameras against the walls and corners. So back when I mentioned some of the evidence found, I said how the home security cameras had been turned against the walls. Apparently, Scott had done this because he thought that the feds were literally listening and watching him. 
So, apparently, he only grew more and more paranoid and even suicidal. Scott was going over different suicide methods when he came to an idea. And this was with Ian. He was going over different suicide methods with Ian until he was like, Hey, Ian, this is what I want to do. He told Ian he wanted them both to go lay in bed together and shoot themselves in the heart. (gasps) This is when Ian got genuinely freaked out and concerned for his own safety, uh, rightfully so, and this is when he reached out for the to the feds for help. He literally was like, "Hey, this <laughs> I don't know what to up. do Come about my save homie. Me. Can you help me? <laughs> hey, my friend Sarah's acting a little <laughs> weird today." <laughs> um. So obviously, earlier I did mention how that one federal agent gave her information to both Ian and Matthew. Um, at this point, Ian has reached out for help, but Matthew did not ever reach out for help from the feds. So, during this conversation, uh, conversation still with Ian, Major Herbert asked him if he thinks Matthew could have shot Scott. Ian described Matthew as a gentle giant and that he couldn't have, that he didn't have an evil bone in his body. But he did believe that Scott could have gotten him into a headspace where he had seen no other way out. Matthew was brainwashed and completely under Scott's spell. And remember, at this time in the investigation, Matthew is still in the hospital fighting for his life from his suicide attempt. But on September 5th, nine days after Scott's murder... Kimmy and medical professionals agreed to take Matthew off of life support. So he did pass away. Fuck, dude. Fifteen years after moving to the U.S. with Scott, Ian returned to England and reunited with his mother. He is now married with a few kids. He's a survivor and is said to be a bright light. Ian has also claimed that the two younger boys who got removed from Scott weren't abused and were loved and cared for, which is kind of interesting. Kimmy still lives in the U.S., but not much is not much is known about her nowadays or like at all. So good for her, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's like I want to say stuff, but. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew is described as a gentle giant, Mm -hmm. sweet, always dreamt about going back to England to see his family, but never got the chance. Um, Just a couple things about this case from, uh, so Ethan said the most powerful weapon against a pedophile is exposing them. Yes. Which can seem pretty obvious, but it it literally is the truth because... Josh Duggar. <laughs> dot, 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 com. Jesus Christ. 
I'm like, he. they because have a TV the show and this man has still yet, like, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I'm sorry. This is a rant for another day. I'm just. <laughs> uh, and Rana Gray said something about child predators that, you know, we should always keep in mind. And this is other another, like, eh, it might seem obvious to some of us and not so obvious to some of us, but. It's it's one of those small uh, facts that even if it's obvious, we can forget it. So um, she said that before pedophiles or, you know, whatever fucking child predators, usually before they try and gain the trust of their victims... They attempt to gain the trust of the community first. Yes. So that if and when something ever goes wrong, people don't ever believe that they could have anything to do with it. Stay tuned. And stay tuned. And then also, like, that's what happened with the Candyman killer case. Like, he had built a rapport with the community it's disgusting. It's a disgusting notion that we still victim blame, but I mean, go off. But at the same time, don't go off. <laughs> don't blame <laughs> if there ain't nothing to blame. Because females do be doing that, unfortunately. But yeah, it's just like, it's so fucking, ugh. I. Ugh. It's Ugh. hard. It's hard. It's so... Mm. Just wait. Just wait. I go off. I go off. Yeah, well, hopefully Simba. that makes sense. Not my cat. Not my cat calling me out for the empty cans of White Claw in the back. <laughs> Sorry. Also, apologize for any purring or noise. My cat Simba's loose in the closet. He gets really yeah. lonely without me, guys. We both have separation issues. It happens. My dog is next to me and snoring because he he wouldn't even go sleep with his dad. <sighs> I know, but see, differences. My <laughs> cats are assholes, and they don't have like any. They don't care about anything other than themselves. And like my last relationship, I just let it go and I let it flow. <laughs> <laughs> so he's gonna stay and he's gonna purr and he's gonna make noise like you just gotta deal with it <laughs> but that's just simba for you he's just he's cute go check out twitter if you want to go watch him he got some love on there should we do a closing out thing i just want to make sure that you were done i didn't know that you were done yet yeah but yeah well... <clears throat> That was Scott Rogers. But yeah, be sure to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, be sure to. <clears throat> be sure to check out uh, Simba. And I'll be sure to take pictures of Pickles because he's my other cat. He's just um, a way bigger of an asshole, but he's. He's cute. So I'll, I'll post some photos. But check our animals out and we'll push blah, 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 and we'll push them pushies of bushy <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll post some photos of Sarah's dog Bishy <laughs> <laughs> let me woo! <laughs> 
be sure to check out our social medias for all of our animals that like to call us out on our alcoholism at Twitter, Instagram, Good Pods. Oh, fuck. YouTube. Um, shit. I can't do. I need to make a list, man, at this point. TikTok. I think I did. I did pretty good. At R-A-R-W podcast. And I'm not going to sing it tonight because I'm embarrassing all enough already. But if you're feeling lonely, send us a little email. Give me, give me a little something to read tonight, okay? Let us know something. Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast at gmail.com. Say it a little bit louder <laughs> Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast at gmail.com. Yes. Mm hmm. Oh, my baby's crying. All right, I gotta go. Love you. Okay, bye. I love bye. you. Bye.